But William Carey, is that a familiar name to you? William Carey is known as the father of modern day missions. During a period of church history when overseas missionary endeavors were largely neglected, uh, Carey wrote an essay, and the title of it was An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Lost. In it, among other things, he argued for the indispensable necessity of sending preachers to proclaim the gospel to people who had never heard it. And during a meeting of church leaders in England in the late 1700s, the young, newly ordained William Carey stood up and argued for the vital importance of overseas missions. However, he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. But Carey insisted that God does not convert people apart from the use of means. And that the human means of preaching and sending gospel preachers is the only way to fulfill Christ's great commission. And in his article, he castigated uh, fellow believers by writing this. He said, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. However, Carey went beyond writing. In the year 1792, he organized a missionary society. And at its inaugural meeting, he preached a sermon entitled, Expect Great Things from God, Attempt Great Things for God. Isn't that a great title? Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And within one year, Carey and his wife and three sons, with another child on the way, attempted something truly great for God by boarding a ship from England headed for India, where Carey spent the next 41 years of his life without one missionary furlough until he died in 1834. Now in today's text passage in verses 14 to 17, the Apostle Paul focuses our attention on the subject of the necessity of gospel preaching. And this is the most important text of scripture, perhaps best known and most widely used as a text for Christian missions but which also has application for every Christian in his or her personal witness and evangelism. In it, Paul demonstrates the indispensable necessity of gospel preaching and proclamation as it relates to the subject of salvation. 
And there are three points that arise from the text. Uh, They're printed in the bulletin, so take a look there on the right-hand side with me if you would. The first point from verses 14 and 15 is this. Gospel preaching is the ordinary, God-ordained means of salvation. Second, in verse 16, some who hear the gospel will reject it, which was prophetically foretold or foretold by prophets. And third, in verse 17, people coming to saving faith through the instrumentality of hearing the Word of God. Again, the first point taken from verses 14 and 15 is this. Gospel preaching is the ordinary, God-ordained means of salvation. Look at verse 14 in our text. Paul writes, How then shall they call on Him? in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And notice the four questions that Paul asked here about calling, believing, hearing, and preaching. They constitute one of the most frequently used texts in Scripture for soul winning and evangelism and have often been referred to as a stirring plea for missions. You notice, too, how each of these four rhetorical questions demands a negative response. For instance, the answer to Paul's first question, look at it again in verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? The answer is obviously they can't, right? They can't. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? The answer again is they can't. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Again, the answer They cannot. And how shall they preach or proclaim unless they are sent? They can't. Period. They can't. And Paul, you notice, he links all of these questions together in a way that makes it clear that they're all inseparably joined together like links in a chain. In verse 14, people must call upon Jesus as Lord uh, if they will be saved. But they can't call upon Him unless they intelligently believe in Him as crucified and risen. And they can't believe in Him apart from having heard about Him. And they can't hear about Him without a preacher being sent, whose feet the prophet Isaiah foretold would be regarded as beautiful. Why? Because feet that carry the gospel messenger to their missionary destinations with glad tidings of redemption from sin's bondage is a beautiful thing. A really beautiful thing. In fact, there ain't nothing more beautiful than that. And you can probably think back, some of you, uh, and have a, uh, a time when you can remember someone came to you 
Someone brought the gospel into your life. Maybe it was a preacher. Maybe it was someone else. And uh, I remember, in fact, I just had recently contact with the man who led me to Christ back in college. And, you know, every time I think of that man, I think, what beautiful feet he has. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for sending him to me. Thank you that he made his way into my life and told me about Jesus so long ago. Well, anyway, in reverse order and stated negatively, Paul says this, if preachers weren't sent, then no one could hear. If no one could hear, then no one could believe. If no one could believe, then no one could call on the Lord. And if no one could call on Him, then no one would be saved. So that's the forward and the backward view. Paul's point is that understanding truth must precede saving faith. Understanding truth must precede saving faith. John Stott wrote this, The essence of Paul's argument is seen if we put his verbs in the opposite order. Christ sends heralds, heralds preach, people hear, hearers believe, believers call, and those who call are saved. Thus, unless some are commissioned for the task, There will be no gospel preachers unless the gospel is preached. Sinners will not hear Christ's message and voice unless they hear him. They will will not believe the truths of his death and resurrection unless they believe these truths. They will not call on his name. And unless they call on his name, they will not be saved. End quote. And the reason why all of this is true is because gospel preaching is the necessary, ordinary, God-ordained means of salvation. Here's how you can apply this. First, the greatest responsibility of a New Testament church is to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. Churches must be sending agents. Think of it that way. Churches, ours, every church, must be a sending agent. Of course, sending doesn't only mean sent from our own membership, although churches do this sometimes. And we do have one member from this church, Miriam Gebb, uh, whom we sent over 40 years ago as a missionary to Ecuador and still support her in that endeavor. But in addition to Miriam, we have nine others who uh, we've been sending and supporting prayerfully and financially for many years. You'll find their names, by the way, and the places where they're sent on the back of your bulletin. Why do we do this? Why? We do it Because gospel preaching and proclamation is the necessary, ordinary, God-ordained means of salvation. And we're commanded to be part of this great missionary enterprise. James Boyce long ago wrote, he said, If people today in unreached areas of the world are to hear the gospel and have the opportunity to believe on Jesus Christ, then those who know Christ must pool their resources to send God's messengers to them. We must 
do it. A strong missions program is mandatory for an obedient church. End quote. Second application is this. Unless the gospel is preached to the lost and believed by them, they cannot and will not be saved. I hope you've got that straight. Some people today don't have that right. They think somehow, well, if the gospel never gets to certain people out on the mission fields of the world, then they're safe. As long as they didn't hear about Jesus, they're not accountable. That's foolishness. We don't get that from the Bible. And yet there's some very well-known evangelical people who have taught that kind of thing and still are teaching it in recent days. Unless the gospel is preached, let me emphasize the word unless, unless the gospel is preached to the lost and believed by them, they cannot and they will not be saved. That's what's implied by today's text passage, namely that all those who do not call upon the name of the Lord and who do not believe in Him shall perish. Christ makes claims, listen, of soul exclusivity that cannot be under, uh, misunderstood. For instance, in John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then what did He say? No man comes to the Father except through Me. Which is why Jesus could say that faith in Him is a person's only hope of eternal life and not perishing. As Jesus said concerning Himself in the most familiar of all Bible verses, John 3.16, Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So unless the Gospel is preached to the lost and believed by them, they cannot and they will not be saved. When we come now to the second point, concerning gospel preaching, which is closely related to the first one. And it's taken from verse 16, which is this on your outline. Notice, some who hear the gospel will reject it, which was prophetically foretold. Verse 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, Paul writes. For Isaiah says, pointing back to the Old Testament, For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report or our message? Paul plainly states the fact of human unbelief. He wrote, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. But wouldn't you think such good news would be obeyed and believed by everyone who hears it? But Paul's response is no, no. They have not all obeyed the gospel. And we have reason to think here that Paul may have had Jews particularly in mind here, since he refers to them as Israel in verses 19 and again in verse 21. See it? And at the end of verse 16, Paul quotes Isaiah 
53, that all familiar passage in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53.1, which says, Lord, who has believed our report or our message? Isaiah 53 is perhaps the best known Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament scriptures, describing Messiah's condescension to earth and coming to his very own people. And yet, they did not receive him. He came to his own people, and they did not receive him. And by means of this question, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah is lamenting here. He's lamenting the fact that so many of the Jews in his day were slow to leave Babylon even after their captivity had ended. If you look at the historical context, Israel was in bondage to the Babylonians and they were in exile, but now they were released from that. And when the report came that they were free to go, some were slow to believe it. Apparently, some uh, never went back to their own land, if you can imagine. They got used to Babylon, and they liked it. So Paul points to their unbelief as a precursor of more unbelief to come, because both Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day were slow to embrace and believe in Messiah Jesus. For instance... You remember that during his earthly ministry, Christ lamented the unbelief of many, especially his own countrymen, the Jews, such as in Matthew 23:37, when Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And in John 12.37, the Apostle bewailed the fact that Christ's ministry had not had greater effects than it did. In John 12.37, John recorded this, But although Jesus had done so many signs before them, yet they did not believe in Him. However, as Paul notes here in verse 16, this was prophetically foretold. No surprise. This was prophetically foretold, foretold by the ancient prophet Isaiah here. Namely, that some who hear the gospel will reject it. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So this is how we can apply this to ourselves. It is this. Season your disappointment over those who reject the gospel message by the knowledge that prophets foretold it. Again, season your disappointment over those who reject the gospel message by the knowledge that prophets foretold it. Now I know it's hard sometimes to see people who you've loved and prayed for often to remain indifferent to the gospel. You'd think that such glorious news as Christ's death and resurrection would thrill their hearts, but reality for some is that they reject it, don't they? They reject it out of hand. 
So when that happens, remember to do this. Season your disappointment over those who reject the gospel message by the knowledge that this is the plan and purpose of God. The prophets of old foretold it. They knew this would be how it would occur. Well, the third point concerning gospel preaching taken from verse 17 is this on your outline. People come to saving faith through the instrumentality of hearing the Word of God. Verse 17, probably the most familiar one in our text for you. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This is a kind of summary statement that Paul concludes with. He wrote, So then, and the simple but inestimably great and profound truth that Paul asserts here is that faith comes by hearing the Word of God, which simply means that people come to saving faith through the instrumentality of hearing the Word of God. And therefore the proclamation and the dissemination of God's Word is the very means empowered by the Spirit that produces saving faith in those who hear. The Apostle Peter describes Christians as having been born again through or by means of the Word of God. And I think if Christians were really convinced of that, they were really, if you and I were really, truly convinced of that, then there'd be a lot more proclamation, preaching, and evangelizing going on. We wouldn't be missing those opportunities that we walk by uh, every day, every week, every month. huh? Because the bottom line is that saving faith, faith that saves and sets people free comes by hearing the Word of God. Let me illustrate this with a true story about a man named Rochunga Pudate. He was from India, land of uh, William Carey. He was from a tribe called the Hamar tribe, H-M-H-M. A-R, Hamar tribe. They were the most dreaded headhunting tribe in all of India. They were described as barbaric. They were like wild animals. You can read about the Hamars and Rochunga's amazing life story in a book that he wrote entitled, The Book That Set My People Free. And as the story goes, no one dared to reach out to the Hamar tribe until a Welsh missionary named Watkin Roberts brought the Bible to them. He was a chemist who had been converted during the great Welsh revival in the early 1900s. And when he read an account of the savagery of the Hamar people, he was deeply moved. He felt led to take the Word of God to these people. So Roberts traveled to India, but when he arrived, the British authorities who controlled India at that time refused to let him cross the border into the Hamar territory. Too dangerous, they said. You'll lose your life. 
Therefore, Roberts found someone from a neighboring tribe who knew the Hamar language, and he translated just one of the 66 books of the Bible, the Gospel of John, into the Hamar language, and then printed several hundred copies of it and sent those copies to each one of the tribal chiefs throughout the Hamar territory. One of these copies made its way to the village where Rochunga's father, named Chawanga, was chief. And after reading it, he had questions, especially wondering what it meant to be born again. So he sent a messenger to Watkin Roberts, inviting him to come with him and to meet with him in the tribal village. Well, the British authorities warned Roberts very severely that the chief was only baiting him and really wanted to behead him. But Roberts went anyway, and he met with Chief Chawanga and explained the gospel to him, which he believed. This is around the turn of that century, around 1900-ish. Keep that in mind. Well, Chawanga became one of the first Hamar preachers who traveled extensively throughout the Hamar territory, preaching the gospel, leading many to Christ, and establishing many churches. Chawanga's son, Rochunga, was later chosen by the Hamar people to go to Scotland and then later to America for theological training so that he would be able to complete the rest of the Hamar translation of the scriptures, which he did. And in his book, Rochunga describes the enormous changes that had taken place since Watkin Roberts had first sent those translations of the Gospel of John to his father and to the other Hamar tribal chiefs. He wrote this, and I quote, The Hamars have become one of the most advanced ethnic groups in all of India. At least 95% are Christians, worshiping in over 200 churches, 85% can read and write, which is a phenomenally high percentage in India. The Hamars have nearly 100 church-sponsored schools and have built a hospital staffed by Hamar doctors and nurses. They also now occupy high-ranking positions in India, such as foreign, a foreign ambassador and state administrators. The Hamars are also exemplary in missionary activities. They have taken the gospel to other tribes within India and started hundreds of churches in other territories and have provided emergency relief efforts to some of the poorest tribes hit by disease and by famine. End quote. Rochunga also became the head of a Christian publishing company called Bibles for the World, which has mailed millions of free Bibles to over 100 countries and whose global and mission statement is to eventually give away 1 billion Bibles. And they're still up and running, moving forward. Before he died in 2015... Rochunga made this comment, except for Watkin Roberts, the only missionary the Hamar people have ever had was the Bible. 
It is the book that reveals the mind of God, the heart of man, the way of salvation, and the blessedness of believers. It is the book that tells us where we come from and where we are going. It is the book that set my people free. End quote. What a powerful illustration of the truth contained in verse 17, namely that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And this faith that comes by hearing the Word of God is a faith that saves and sets men free and radically changes human lives. Well, here's several applications as we draw to a close. The first one is this. If people can only be converted by hearing the gospel message, then Christians must make sure that others hear it. Let me repeat it. It's really important for you and me, isn't it? If people can only be converted by hearing the gospel message, then Christians must make sure that others hear it. Because all who are saved, or who will be saved, are saved because a Christian or Christians have done something to bring the gospel to them. So don't imagine that your evangelistic efforts are unimportant or optional. No, God doesn't save people without human messengers or without human instrumentality. Even the occasional conversion in a lonely hotel room as a result of someone reading a Gideon Bible didn't happen apart from human means, did it? Because someone bought that Bible and someone brought that Bible to that place and someone probably also was praying that God would use that Bible in someone's life. Also, those saved by reading a gospel track will do well to consider that a Christian wrote it and others published it and still others arranged to get it into people's hands. The same is true of those who have been saved by hearing via radio or television or the internet. God says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the way salvation came to you. And it's also the way it must go from you to others. One last application is this. Widely spread the Christian gospel while you still have opportunity to do so. Widely spread the Christian gospel while you still have opportunity to do so. As one of our nation's Supreme Court Justices, Samuel Alito, recently said, and I quote him, one of the great challenges for the Supreme Court of the United States going forward will be to protect religious liberty and freedom of speech. What Alito recognized, or what Alito recognized and acknowledged, is that our First Amendment rights are currently under siege. 
And we, we may be only a few short steps away from losing them or having them severely hampered or compromised. Significant changes and challenges may be on the near horizon. And there may be a greater, maybe greater barriers and obstacles in the way of personal witness and evangelism than we've ever experienced in days past. Yes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, but, but, freely speaking and hearing God's Word may not always be a protective liberty. It can and it may be lost. Therefore, seize the present opportunity by widely spreading the Christian gospel. And if you're not a Christian, in conclusion, let me say this, that the only way you'll ever become one, the only way you'll ever become one, is by hearing the Word of God. So let me encourage you to listen to it, to read it, and to hear it. And by every possible means, take it in to your life. Open your ears, your eyes, and your heart to its message. Because faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And it doesn't come any other way. And if you'll do this, then you will find faith coming to you and finding you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be faithful in bringing the good news of the gospel to others. We all sense here today it is no mystery to any of us that we are in a period of our national life wherein liberties may be lost and compromised and where our mouths need to be wide open to speak uh, truth into people's lives uh, and to widely disseminate and circulate the gospel of Christ while we have opportunity. Help us to be faithful to do that, to be creative in finding ways to do it, uh, to overcome our native laziness and fears in doing it in the coming days. We bless you and thank you for your gospel, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And we ask, Lord, that it would be just that for others to whom we speak it in the coming days. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.